Hey guys, welcome to episode 18 of The Daily Churn. Today is going to be a mix mash of things. So there'll be a December recap where I'll run through the things I churned in December. And it was a, a bit of a slow month with the holidays. And actually, most of my time was spent doing cell phone churns, which I covered in the previous episode. So I'll give a full rundown of exactly how much money I made doing that, along with some of the other smaller random churns that posted last month, then I thought it might be interesting to do a full end of year recap of all the months since the podcast began, which I think was in July, so about six months worth, and how much money was made churning throughout that whole time, how many points were accrued, how many different types of accounts were opened. It's, it's quite a few then I thought I'd end it with something a little bit different since it is the last episode of the year, which is a recap of the podcast itself, like how the show is doing, you know, how many people are listening, how many folks are subscribed, and then a couple updates for season two next year. Not sure how many people are interested in that kind of stuff though, but it is at the end, so definitely feel free to skip that part. But um, for now, let's dive into December churns. All right, so starting with cell phones. So essentially, there were a whole bunch of deals running for the last couple months in November, December, and even before then, but I sort of jumped in around the November-ish timeframe. But in a nutshell, there were just a ton of really good deals through Best Buy and Costco for getting really big discounts on iPhone 13s. I'm not sure how many of those are still running. I haven't checked recently, but if you are curious about how the deal works exactly, Definitely check out the previous episode. I think it was episode 17 on churning iPhones. Or if you're just looking for cheap cell phone plans, you can churn SIM cards and that's covered in episode 13. But basically what I did was I bought two iPhone 13 Pros, which retail would have cost $2,100, probably more like $2,200 after you factor in uh, sales tax. But I ended up only paying $1,549, one five four nine. And the way that ended up playing out was that I got one iPhone 13 for $693 after I traded in an iPhone SE to Best Buy and Best Buy was giving 360-ish, I think, as a bonus trade-in value, which is really high for an iPhone SE. Then I also bought an iPhone 13 Pro for $542 by trading in an iPhone 12 mini, which I bought at Walmart for $314. So that adds up to about $850 for how much I paid for the iPhone 13 Pro instead of $1,100. Now, the way to make money off of this is then to sell them on Swappa for a profit. And the reason you can make a profit is because on Swappa, iPhone 13s due to, I guess, a shortage or just really high demand, they're being sold at retail or above retail, or in my case, unfortunately, below retail. So iPhone 13 Pros, when I first acquired those phones, were selling for at retail which then since dropped to below retail by the time I sold them versus the iPhone 13 Pro Max is still, I believe, selling for above retail. So if you can get your hands on those, those are the preferred ones. But I got the iPhone 13 Pros, the regular kind, because that was the only one that was conveniently in stock near me. And I ended up selling one of them for $1,070, the 256 gigabyte model, which retails for $1,100. So I actually sold it for $30 below retail. Then the other one I sold for $970, again, $30 below retail because it was an iPhone 13 Pro 128 gigabyte, which retailed for $1,000. So I ended up selling both of those phones for a total of $2,040 versus ideally I was hoping for $2,100 or above 
which would have been the retail price or slightly above retail. So in theory, you'd still come out in that scenario still quite a bit ahead, you know, getting $2,040 for something you only paid $1,550 for. That ends up being like $500 worth of profit. Unfortunately, with all the fees, that really does cut into things. So Swappa charged $25 for one of the listings because it was below $1,000 and $35 for another listing because it's above 1000 And those fees are still way cheaper than eBay listing fees, which I believe uses a percentage-based model. But again, that ends up being $60 to Swappa. Then PayPal charged $103 on the $2,000 purchase. And part of that was because my buyer was international. And when a PayPal buyer is international, you get charged 5% in PayPal fees instead of 3.5%. I think it means I made about $30 less than I would have because he's an international buyer. So that is something that I would probably recommend asking the buyer ahead of time in the future and something that I would probably do going forward. Then there was $26 of shipping, which included $2,000 worth of shipping insurance. So you could probably forego that insurance if you wanted to and only pay, I think, around like $10 or $11 for the shipping. But with such a high dollar value and with all the shipping craziness happening now due to COVID and, and shipping delays and the holidays, I thought it'd just be best to pay the extra $15 for the shipping just to be safe. So all of that added up together ended up being $189 worth of fees. And once you take the fees off of the selling price and you factor in the $15.50 that I paid for the phones in the first place, the net total that I made from the sales was $302. Honestly, given how much work that involved, I would say probably barely worth it for the $302. However, it was one of those things where I was going to Costco anyway for shopping. And with Costco, part of the deal was that I'm getting two $300 Costco shopping cards as part of opening these lines with T-Mobile. So while the phones themselves only made 302 from reselling, I am going to get $600 worth of Costco shopping credit in the next couple of months, which definitely makes the whole thing worth it. And on the topic of cell phones, I also bought a couple Boost Mobile $1 SIM cards because those are useful to keep around for future like bring your own device kind of a deals where they offer you money to port in a number. So just having like a set of burner numbers ready for those is, is always nice. And uh, one thing I found was that I paid for them using an Amex Business Platinum and Amex Business Platinum reimburses, I believe, $10 a month for wireless. And a lot of these cards usually only treat the main carriers like T-Mobile, Verizon, etc. as eligible wireless carriers. But in this case, even the Boost Mobile transactions were reimbursed. So my feeling is, at least with the Amex Business Platinum, pretty much all MVNOs as well as the main carriers are reimbursable, which is nice. Like if you buy something on Cricket or Mint, I haven't tested that out myself, but my feeling is that Cricket Mint would also trigger the wireless credit. So yeah, that's unique and a bit of a nice surprise. But anyhow, in terms of like actual money made or saved in December on cell phones, it was the 302 for selling the iPhone 13s. And then I actually got six visible referrals that came through in December. I guess the previous episode on churning iPhones was actually quite popular, or I guess more popular than my normal episodes. And I'll touch on that a little bit at the end when I talk about just how the podcast is doing. But yeah, that was nice. There was Nerdy928 on Reddit and I guess five other anonymous listeners. So I appreciate it, guys. 
I'm not sure exactly how to count it. I was thinking that usually I would have paid $25 a month for Visible minus the $10 from using an Amex Business Platinum. So I would have paid $15. Now, the way the referral works is that each person referring and referred gets a month for $5. So instead of me paying $15, I would pay $5. But then the Amex Business Platinum covers that $5. So I end up paying $0. So I'm just going to count each one as $15 because that's really how much money I'm saving. So six times $15, $90. So the 302 from selling the iPhone plus $90 of visible referrals ends up being $392 for cell phones in December. All right, so moving on to banks. Spoiler with banks is that I only made $5 with banks, but um, I figured I'd talk about them anyway because there's a, a few updates I wanted to mention. First off, just being maybe a mini rant with my wife's Chase business checking account, which we opened months ago for the $750 bonus for depositing 10k. So that all posted fine, I think last month or the month before, but we've now had to go into the branch three separate times to have them verify our identity. So we went in, I believe a month and a half or two months ago to have them re-upload a driver's license, which was uploaded at the time of application, but for some reason they wanted it again and got a letter saying that they're going to freeze the account and eventually close it if you don't go in to upload it. So we went into the branch, spent you know a good hour chit-chatting with the banker because their bankers are just literally so bored that it took her like a good hour to upload our driver's license while making small talk. So, you know, sat through all of that, that was fine, thought it was all over. And in December, just a couple weeks ago, we had a credit card payment that was due because we opened our Southwest Performance and Premier cards to get the companion pass on my wife's business account. And those are all set with auto pay. And we check her account and we see that she's been charged a late payment fee as well as a payment returned fee and finance charges, which ended up totaling about a hundred or so dollars because her payment was returned and the payment was coming from her business checking account. So we call in and discover that her business checking account has been frozen again without any kind of notification. It seems that the previous banker, when they uploaded her driver's license, didn't upload it properly again. And so they wanted us to go back to the branch and upload our driver's license as well as a social security card into Chase's iVault system for a third time. And so, you know, aside from it just being totally inconvenient to go in three times. Our credit card is also now late. Luckily, they give you a grace period of 30 days before they report to the agencies as late. But if we hadn't checked it, we wouldn't have necessarily known that the credit card payment was declined. And it was a good thing we checked because we had a second payment going to the other Southwest card that we had that was also on auto pay from the same account. But the business account is frozen. And while it's frozen, you can't access it. You know, we've got $12,000 literally just frozen in that account right now that we can't access. Yeah, the whole thing has been definitely quite a fiasco to the point where I'm almost questioning if it's worth $750 for the bonus. I still think it is because it is a really big bonus, but hopefully this third time is the last time we need to go in because this time we scheduled a banker appointment at a totally different chase because the previous two times we had gotten the same banker. And, you know, I, I don't know if it was her fault or if Chase just keeps 
upping the requirements for account verifications, but we wanted to just try something different and went to a different banker. And this banker was super competent. Like she whizzed through that whole process in 10 minutes flat. And she was saying that apparently it's a new thing now with Chase business accounts that they are requiring for many accounts during the review, a social security card to be uploaded. Before it was just a driver's license. So the social security card apparently is a new thing that they're asking for. And yeah, I, I don't know. It's been, a, it's been a process with Chase and I'm hoping that they will unfreeze our account in the next few days and this won't happen again and things will be smooth sailing from here. But just something to keep in mind if you're looking to do Chase business checking accounts is that they do seem to be clamping down on whether or not you have a real business, what type of business it is, and then also verifying your identity through social security cards. Then the sad news for everyone last month was that uh, H&M Bradley is making changes to their accounts. I think we all kind of knew that 3% on 100k for pretty easy to work around requirements was probably not going to last, but still kind of bummed that they've changed it now to require having their credit card to be eligible for the 3% and also upping the direct deposit requirement to $2,500 a month. So... I don't know. I think it's still worth it to us for my wife and I to keep one of our accounts open and just consolidate everything into that one single account, because ultimately it's pretty hard to find anywhere where you can get 3% for parking cash, because that translates into $250 a month worth of interest or $3,000 a year worth of interest if you have $100,000 in there. I think the real downside is having to use up one of your 524 slots for the H&M Bradley credit card. Since I am in P1, P2 mode with my wife, using up one slot is like not the biggest deal. We would have preferred not to, but for $3,000 worth of interest a year, I think that's worth it. If you're just, you know, doing this as a single player, yeah, it's kind of a hard choice whether or not you want to burn a slot for this. If you have $100,000 sitting and you need it to be in cash, I think it is probably still worth it. And since we're doing the lean fire thing, we do need to have a good cash reserve. So for us, it makes sense. I'm not sure it does for everyone though. So yeah, not ideal. And then in terms of the $2,500, for me, again, that doesn't really make too much of a difference versus it being just a $5 direct deposit because I use Square. And I did an episode back on episode two, I think was about Square and Gusto. Episode one actually was about H&M Bradley. So you can always catch up on those. But I think the, the methods are still applicable. So for me, instead of paying myself $20 a month using Square, I'm going to pay myself $2,500 a month using Square. And that just pays into the same bank account that Square deducts from. So it really has very little impact in that sense. The main downside, though, is that H&M Bradley wants you to save 20% of what you put in. So by transferring $2,500, they want me to keep, what is that, $500 of that in H&M Bradley each month. So each month, my balance is going to go up by $500. And if you already have $100,000 in there, the additional money doesn't earn interest. That's a little bit annoying, but the method from episode one still works, where at the end of each quarter, you withdraw everything you put in up until that 20% mark and just redeposit it back at the beginning of the next quarter. So it's a little convoluted, but if you are curious, check out the episode from episode one on how to go about doing that. I, I don't want to get too in the weeds with it here, but 
Yeah, overall not so bad. And then there's a $100 spend requirement each month on the card. I think I'm probably just going to reload Amazon with $100 each month. I mean, we definitely spend more than $100 every month on Amazon. And they give, I think, 3% back on the top category each month. So your $100 ends up really costing you $97. And given that I'm only going to use that HM Bradley card to reload Amazon... Amazon is going to be my top category each month. So net effect of that part is probably zero. So overall, I think it just about weighs out that it's worth it for us to have that HM Bradley credit card and get 3%. But yeah, it's a close call. And in the meantime, the other thing we're doing is moving more money into iBonds. So iBonds right now has that 7.12% variable interest rate, which is more than double what HM Bradley is offering. The downside with iBonds is that you can only buy $10,000 per calendar year per person. However, your business also qualifies. So for us, it's $10,000 for me, $10,000 for my wife, then $10,000 for my wife's business, which means $30,000 this year and starting 2022 we can put in another 30000 into I-bonds and just sort of slowly move money out of H&M Bradley. I think overall, the interest rate landscape is just going to keep improving. You know, the Fed has already announced rate increases into 2022. And so I do think that we're going to see accounts with better interest rate over time. So the whole H&M Bradley devaluation thing is not a huge deal, given that I think in the next year or two, we're going to see other accounts that offer 3%. And in the meantime, you can either open a H&M Bradley credit card or start moving more things into iBonds. So there's definitely options, I think, in the short, mid and long term. So yeah, sad, but not the worst news. Finally, a tiny ray of light in the bank churns for December is that Lily credited me the $5 for the account fee that they charged. So I think I mentioned on a previous recap, but basically Lily had ignored my request to downgrade the pro account to free and so kept charging the $5 and I'd been emailing with them back and forth to get my account downgraded and get the fee refunded and they just, well not they, just the one guy that kept replying back to all my support tickets just sort of ignored the part where they just overcharged the fee. So randomly about a month after the last correspondence, a totally new Lily person emails me and apologizes and credits me the $5. So I don't know what happened there. Maybe like the guy that was ignoring everyone's downgrade requests got fired or got a warning and they reviewed all of his previous tickets and, and was like, oh yeah, okay, this, uh, we should probably fix this. So they fixed it for me, didn't fix it for my wife's account, but in any case, not complaining. But yeah, that was the entirety of my December bank churns was that $5 from Lily. Next up is credit cards. Again, didn't do too much on the credit card front. Main things were that my two Southwest cards are now both about $100 away from hitting spend. One's 5K, one's 3K spend. And so I will be this week finishing up the spend there and hopefully getting my 140K worth of Southwest points, which should immediately qualify us for the companion pass for the next two years. Just a bit of a tip too for people who have the Southwest Performance Card. We were just traveling over the holidays and one thing the Performance Card gives you is upgraded boarding on the day of check-in. So when you go to the gate, you can ask for upgraded boarding at Southwest and all that does is it moves you into the A1 through 15 group. So you end up boarding earlier so you can get better seats. I mean, they're all sort of the same, but there are a couple of seats on the plane that we always try to get, which are the two 
by the exit row that is just two people. So there's no third seat. That's nice if you like don't want to sit next to anyone or if you have to pee a lot during the flights. Those are the ones we usually go for. But usually if you're past A30, A45-ish, you're probably not going to get them because some other person who is a couple will grab those first. Anyways, you can do the upgraded boarding and it's usually like $40 to $50, but they'll reimburse it. The tip here though is that you only get four of those upgraded boardings per year that get reimbursed for free on the performance card. So instead of actually buying two upgraded boardings because you're traveling with, let's say, yourself and your P2, you just buy one of the upgraded boardings because with Southwest, once you board, it's common practice to just save the seat next to you for your family. So instead of both of you paying $80 to then go and save those two seats, only one of you needs to be in a 1 through 15 group. And so that means instead of you only getting two flights worth of free upgraded boardings, now you can get four flights worth. And we're flying to Hawaii and that's a pretty long flight. So we definitely recommend saving those upgrades for those longer flights. I also opened the Hyatt business card for 75,000 points. It's an okay card. I mean, you would really just open it for the bonus. I had the previous personal Hyatt card. Now I'm just getting the Hyatt business one. And the main reason to do it is if you've already opened like Chase Inc. Cash and Chase Inc. Unlimited and Chase Inc. Preferred and gone through that whole cycle for yourself and your P2 and however many businesses you might have, which we have done, then the next logical one, at least for us, is the Hyatt business card because for us, Hyatt points are as good as Chase points. Most of my Chase points go into Hyatt point conversions that we use for Hyatt hotels because I'm a globalist there and I, I do really love the whole Hyatt program and how good they are for their top tier members. But essentially, it's 75,000 points for spending $7,500. So exactly the same as the in-cash and the unlimited in terms of the bonus. It's just that you're getting Hyatt points instead of Chase points. The downside, though, is that the annual fee, I think, is like $195. You'll get $100 of that back in Hyatt credit, which for us, again, is as good as cash given that we do stay at Hyatt's. So then you end up paying the $95, but the Hyatt personal card was also $95. So what I ended up doing was I just canceled the Hyatt personal card, and now we just have the Hyatt business card. One alternative, though, is I have heard that you can open multiple Chase Inc. cards for the same business and get that bonus multiple times. So like if you have a business and you open two or three or four chasing cash cards, you'll get the bonus each time because there is no restriction like there is on the Sapphire cards. But I think there are also like light rumors of potential shutdowns by doing that where Chase doesn't like you having multiple of those cards tied to the same SSN or EIN. So I don't know what the threshold is, but for us just to be safe, since we do have a lot of ultimate reward points banked at Chase, we're pretty protective of our Chase accounts. And so getting the Hyatt card was just the easier, safer option. Finally, for credit cards, the thing that did actually make us a little bit of money was just cashback. On our Amex card for spending $200 at Marriott, they gave us $50 back. And that was nice because we were at the Westin in Kona, Hawaii for Christmas. And I booked that on a, a free seven-night stay using one of the really, really old Marriott travel packages that were supposed to expire at the end of 2021, which is why I booked it. 
but has once again been extended, I believe now into mid 2022. So for those that know, this travel package thing happened when SPG merged with Marriott, which is like ancient news. I mean, that must have happened four or five years ago. And these travel packages, people gambled on them, hoping that with the merger, you'd get something better. It turned out it wasn't the case. You got pretty much the equivalent. And uh, I've had this travel certificate and it's been set to expire pretty much every six months for the last four or five years. And so finally was able to use it. And I just wanted to honestly be rid of it at this point because I think everyone who has one of these feels this way, which is just like, it's a lot of effort to keep track of whether or not they're going to extend. And usually they only give you like a month or two before the expiration date, before they'll tell you if they're extending it. So sort of just kind of like background stress from having this travel certificate. And on Flyer Talk, I think that thread is now just hundreds of pages long. They've broken it up into multiple years. Like the thread spans just half a decade and has hundreds of pages of comments on each year's version of the thread. It's pretty insane. Anyhow, I finally was able to use it at the Western and Kona. And if you don't know, the Western Kona is the sister resort to the Mona Kea Kona. So they're next door, owned by the same owners, I think. And you can actually walk from one resort right next to the other one. And they're both on arguably the best beach in Kona. So really great hotel. But just staying there reminds me of why I hate Marriott so much. I'm not sure if this was always the case with the Western, but as of now and has been for the last a year or so, they have a special crappier free breakfast just for Platinum members. So instead of Platinum members getting access to the normal breakfast, they have a continental only, so no hot food breakfast that is only for their elite Platinum guests, which is, you know, just <laughs> kind of a, a great representation of how Marriott treats their elite members. So really, I guess no surprise there. Then parking used to be included with their resort fee. They've since broken that out now. So they've raised the resort fee. I think resort fee is now $37, but you pay taxes on the resort fee. So it ends up being around $42 a day for the resort fee. And you get literally nothing. Um, I think you get two bottles of water, a beach bag that you can use that's worth maybe a dollar. It's, it's absolutely nuts, but they at least before when parking was included, you could maybe sort of justify it, but parking has now also been broken out and it's a separate charge. So parking is a $40 a day fee on top of the resort fee. So even though we were there for free using our certificate, you're looking at almost $100 a day just in the resort fee and parking. Luckily, we did find a workaround for their parking, which, um, yeah, if you're interested, feel free to ping me on Reddit or, or Telegram etc. And, and I'll share it there. Then they also do a thing where they'll reduce the resort fee by a whole $5 a day if you're a platinum guest, but you have to ask. And the front desk at first pretends like they don't know what you're asking about. But if you say the right words, which happen to be, I'd like a $5 credit for the premium Wi-Fi because platinum members get it for free. If you say those words in the right combination, they'll give you $5 off the resort fee. So, you know, better than nothing. If you're staying there for seven days, that's kind of like a whole day's worth of resort fees that you save. That plus the $50 back on $200 at Marriott meant that we only ended up spending $150 total for that trip for seven nights, which is pretty good considering the cash rate was going for $1,200 a room. So if you were to book a room, 
about $10,000 for that week, and they were completely sold out. The other issue too with traveling in general right now is that rental cars are really, really expensive. The good news there is that I can confirm that a few of the national codes that I posted um, a few months back on the national rental episode are still working. So instead of paying over $1,000 for our one-week rental, we paid just under $300. So yeah, pretty good given the whole rental car crunch. But overall, for credit cards, it was just that $50 back through the Amex offer. Honestly, these Amex offers are kind of getting ridiculous. I think my friend said it best when we were chatting about it in Kona, actually. We happened to both be there at the same time. But he's like, yeah, Amex is basically like the modern day coupon cutting now, where you have to just scour through hundreds of offers every week just to see what offers are out there and applicable to you and add them to your card. And remember that you've got like these 14 offers now on your cards and you've got multiple cards, right? So you're just tracking all of this stuff. And yeah, it's getting pretty ridiculous. And that coupled with just constantly having to find crap to buy on Dell, it's yeah, I digress. But um, getting back on topic, lastly, we have brokerages. Nothing really happened in brokerages other than a couple people used my Nadex referral. So I got $200 that way. So thanks to Worldwide Webster on Reddit and Julian who emailed me. Really appreciate you guys using it. But overall, that's it for brokerages. So 200 there. Then if we tally everything up, got the 50 for credit cards, 200 for brokerages, $5 from banks, 392 from cell phones for, let's see, grand total of 647 for December. Definitely a bit of a slower month compared to previous months, but sort of expected, I guess, given that I was on vacation and then just generally feeling a little lazy over Christmas and New Year. So yeah, not bad, 647. So tallying everything up though for 2021, so starting in June 29th was when the first episode came out. So my first recap was, I think, episode five for recap of July. So tallying from July all the way through December, so six months worth of, uh, of churns, we've got, let's see, July 3,430. That was a really big month, I think, because of uh, interactive brokers, plus 125,000 ultimate reward points. Then August was 1,027, September 1,392, October 1,980 plus 150,000 of Amex points. November was 2,021 and then December was the 647. So end total is $10,497 over the six months plus 150,000 Amex points plus 125,000 chase points. And then to break it down some more, over those six months, I opened seven credit cards. Some of those bonuses are still pending, like those two Southwest Premier cards. Opened 26 bank accounts for a total of around $4,500 worth of bank bonuses. 16 brokerages for almost $4,000. And then the remainder is sort of divided between like cell phones, churning cell phones, got about $1,000. There's some cashback portals like Rakuten and Frugal, Swagbucks some random credit card offers, $20 from a buying group. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of accounts. I think total on my spreadsheet, I'm seeing 76 different churns that make up that uh, $10,000. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. I mean, my target was roughly about 1,000 a month. And so hitting over 10,000 for just six months, 
definitely very happy with that. I think depending where you are on the churning spectrum of how much you churn, that's either going to sound like a lot or nothing at all, I think, for the real heavy hitting MSers. But for, I think, the roughly 10, 15 hours a week I spend on churning, not too bad because I think I do miss out on a lot of the opportunities where you can scale really heavily and, you know, make six figures on this. But for the fairly minimal amount of effort that I just do as a side hobby for fun, it's it's really not too bad. I, I'm pretty happy with it overall. All right. So finally, I thought I'd end it with a recap of the podcast itself. So kind of meta, it's not anything specific about actual churning. So, you know, if you don't have any interest in, in that kind of thing, definitely feel free to skip this. But I come from a background of like startups and working in consulting and, you know, things like data and metrics and and just business stuff is is pretty interesting to me. So maybe some of you guys, if you're thinking about doing a podcast in the future for yourself, or if you're just curious about this kind of thing, hopefully this scratches that itch a little bit. And on my end, you know, I, I'm pretty open with just generally how much I make churning and how much I get from referrals and stuff. And I think being pretty transparent is something I value when I listen to other podcasts or other shows. And so, yeah, let's see what's probably most interesting. I think starting with, let's say, like viewership or listenership. So this show started June 29th as a little pilot episode. So it's been almost exactly six months. So as of now, and I'm looking at my little stats dashboard, I use Red Circle, a pretty good platform. It's free. So if you're thinking about doing a podcast, recommend checking those guys out. Right now, it's 861 downloads on average per episode. And the trend seems to be going up. The latest episode on churning iPhones is at 979 downloads, so almost hit a thousand plays on the iPhones episode. And I think it may be because I heard that um, milesernenburn.com, M-E-A-B, mentioned my podcast. I hadn't heard of that website until someone pinged me about it. Their end of year GIF recap was was pretty hilarious. But yeah, if you're listening, thanks for uh, mentioning the iPhones episode. And someone on DOC also around the same time happened to mention me in the comments of the HM Bradley post with those negative changes. And so I think some people found my podcast that way. But yeah, it's all kind of sort of random as to how people find it. I think the majority of listeners come in through Reddit because I do post every couple of weeks there. Then in terms of like followers, only Spotify will tell you how many people are actually subscribed. So Apple Podcasts, they don't show you those numbers. But on Spotify, there's 180 of you churners following me, which is pretty cool. And the interesting thing is Spotify only makes up 10% of the total plays. And Apple actually makes up like 30%. So essentially three times as many people listen on Apple Podcasts as they do on Spotify. So I'd imagine if there's 180 on Spotify, there's maybe close to like 500 or so total once you account for Apple as well and other folks just tuning in through their browser and other smaller apps. So yeah, it's like uh, what 71% are coming from mobile. The rest are coming on desktop. If you're curious, I use Ghost. It's free. It's a nicer, in my opinion, nicer, more modern alternative to WordPress. So if you ever want to launch your own blog, would recommend checking out Ghost and you can either pay Ghost to do all the hosting and setup for you or you can set it up yourself on services like DigitalOcean, which is what I do. And so it ends up only costing 
like five, ten dollars a month to host the blog. And the nice feature is whenever I make one of these new episode posts, it will send out the post in the form of an email newsletter to folks that are subscribed. So I've got 114 people right now subscribed to that newsletter. And so if you haven't subscribed yet, shameless plug, you can uh, subscribe for free. You get the full episode along with all the links in your inbox, literally the minute it's published. And it's free to sign up and I don't send any spam or any other emails beside that newsletter. But yeah, those are the uh, podcast stats. And same with the churning tally, depending on how you look at it, it's either going to sound like a lot or a whole lot of nothing. You know, I don't think this show is getting a uh, Spotify contract anytime soon. The way I sort of look at it is if this was an in-person event, not a podcast, I'd be pretty amazed if 25 or 50 people showed up to listen to me talk about any topic. And so I hope this doesn't come across as like a like a humble brag or anything, but I am just genuinely amazed and mildly amused slash confused that a thousand people would listen to this show week after week. Because like, could you imagine posting an event in your town being like, hey, I'm going to talk about churning uh, over at the library next week and then a thousand people show up to listen to you talk like how crazy would that be right but we live in the age of the internet now and that's totally possible just completely online through a podcast and so yeah for me these numbers are pretty huge i had pretty low expectations and aspirations going into this it was just kind of a hey you know maybe um someone other than my wife would want to listen to me talk about churning for uh for like an hour a week so yeah i was already pretty happy when like 10 people downloaded it so now that it's a thousand i'm i'm still pretty happy and so yeah this isn't gonna turn into uh, a joe rogan anytime soon and i think that's a good thing and i really have no desire for it to be that large and originally i called it the daily churn because i was thinking of doing this show daily which I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but just how silly of an idea that was because of how much work one of these episodes takes. And so it ended up being weekly and I've since scaled it back to every two weeks. And part of the reason for that is it takes about eight to 12 hours to get one of these episodes out. And I don't know if that's just because I'm doing it wrong or if it takes this long for everyone else or if everyone else has like a team of people who do all of these like minute tasks for them. But for me, this is my first podcast and you know, eight to 12 hours is sort of uh, how long it's on average been taking. I've been trying to reduce the time, but it hasn't really gone down much. So the way it sort of breaks out is it takes about two, maybe three hours to plan an episode, then two, three hours to record it, two to three hours to edit it, and then a couple hours to get it posted on the sites and then, you know, make a comment about it on Reddit. I think the general advice people give when you're starting anything really, not just a podcast, is to spend about 50% on the actual content and 50% of your time on marketing. And uh, I have not followed that at all. I think I've barely spent really any time on marketing just because I, I don't really enjoy it. And for me, it is just a hobby. Like I'm not trying to make a living off of this. And so I have the luxury of not really having to hustle for listeners. You know, like I'll post on Reddit in the daily thread 
when I make one of these posts, but that's really about it. Once in a while, I post something on Lean Fire or the award travel subreddit with something relevant and hopefully helpful to people. But other than that, that's pretty much the extent of the marketing. So yeah, it's uh, been a fun six months. Definitely learned a lot and uh, really thankful for everyone listening and supporting the show because it really wouldn't be possible without you guys. I mean, literally, otherwise it would just be me in a room talking to myself, which would be <laughs> kind of weird. So honestly, I've enjoyed interacting with the pretty tight knit community on churning. You know, everyone's been very, very friendly and helpful. I mean, with the exception being if you post a question in the daily discussion thread, but you know, outside of doing something as egregious as that, the community has been awesome. And I'm really grateful for the folks that I've met and for the folks that are tuning in and also for the folks that are helping support the podcast by using one of my referral links. You know, I really am always like a little bit surprised and also excited when someone uses one of those links and I get a notification and I I show my wife and, and you know, she makes fun of me because she thinks this whole podcast hobby is, is kind of cute. So thanks, everyone. Really appreciate you guys. All right, guys, that's it for season one. I figured I'd do seasons where each year is basically a season. So season one being 2021. And then I'm probably going to take a bit of a break before starting season two for 2022. I'll be back at the beginning of February for the January recap. And I think going forward, the way I'll do it is probably have a monthly recap and then bonus episodes for specific topics as they come up. For example, I'm going to be booking ANA first class. I think it's one of the best uses of Amex points out there. So I'll definitely walk you guys through that because it's a bit of a process to make sure you get first class, especially if you're trying to do it for two people. And it's one of those flights where I've had to cancel the last few times because Japan hasn't reopened due to COVID. And in fact, I think actually the, the last time I flew ANAF was coming back from Japan after spending four days in jail back, uh, back in 2020, right when the pandemic was starting. Um, if you're curious about that story, check out the uh, Hayek Globalist episode where I kind of talk about how I ended up in jail in Japan. But that's it for the updates and the recap. I know this episode kind of went a bit longer than the previous ones, but hopefully some of you guys found it interesting. Thanks for tuning in. I will catch you guys for season two. Happy New Year, guys. See ya.